If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 20. We're going to look at Acts chapter 20 uh, briefly this morning. A shorter passage. Last week we worked through almost 41 verses, and, uh, and this week we're only working through 12. So if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair in front of you underneath there. And, and that, uh, that paper Bible, if you don't own a paper Bible or don't have one with you, feel free to take that one. And uh, we're glad that, uh, that you're able to, to use that. And uh, some of you have it on your phone. I think we also put it on the screen here. But we are looking at Acts chapter 20, and we're only going through verse uh, 12 today. Before we begin, um, let me just stress something important to you, uh, and that is that uh, that Jesus is worth giving your life to. Uh, Jesus is worth giving giving your surrender to. That if you've never uh, surrendered your life to Christ, or if if you have and you and you still hold something back, um, if there's still parts of you that are not available, um, I just want to tell you up front that there is nothing uh, more important for you to do than to submit your life fully to Christ and to give your life to the kingdom of God. I know that uh, for some of you that's interesting language. You may not um, necessarily know exactly what that means. Others of you do understand what that means, but but, uh, there are many things that you can give your life to. You can give your entire life and all your effort to your own personal comfort. And you can spend a lifetime pursuing something that brings you joy or happiness, your time. You can spend a lifetime on your career. You can spend your whole lifetime working toward retirement and have this idea that once you retire and and that that life is going to go a certain way. You can give your life to a relationship. Uh, You can give your life to a lot of things. But I want to tell you from not just personal experience, but from the experience of so many people in the room and also from the experience that we read about in Scripture that there's nothing more important than you surrendering and giving your life over to Jesus. Uh, It is the most fulfilling way to live on the deepest soul level. And if if you learn nothing else about the Apostle Paul's life as we walk through Acts, uh, just know that he was a fully surrendered person. He gave his body. It was beaten multiple times, imprisoned, shipwrecked, persecuted. Paul laid everything down for the sake of Jesus Christ. He was completely surrendered to Jesus. I was reminded this week of a statement that you've probably heard before. Uh, burn the ships, right? When a an occupying force would come into a land and as their troops would exit, whether they're about to engage in a a battle that the odds are against them or are insurmountable, oftentimes the general or the leader would, would, would make sure that they burn the ships in the harbor, leaving no possible way to go forward other to go backward. There's, there's no retreat ever again meaning complete commitment. The path forward is the best way to go. Um, In this way, Jesus calls us to leave our old life behind and to fully surrender to Him, to, in in many ways, burn the ships as a sign of total commitment to Him. Jesus said this in Matthew 16.25. He didn't say it in 16.25. It's recorded in Matthew 16.25. that Jesus said, "If if you desire to save your life, 
That is, if you're trying to preserve your life and do things sort of on your own, Jesus says those who desire to save their life will, will lose it ultimately. It doesn't produce life. And I think, we, I think we get that on an intuitive level. That The more I try to do for me, the less satisfying it is, right? But he also said that those who lose their life for my sake will actually gain life. Uh, Jesus also, it's recorded in Luke 9.23 that he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let that person deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. If you find that your life is not where you thought it would be or not how you hoped it would be or your career is not going where you thought it would or your relationships or if all the issues that you're facing in your life, is there an area in which you're holding something back and there's not a daily total surrender to Jesus Christ and to His ways and to walking with Him. Paul is an incredible example of somebody who has radically and completely surrendered to Christ. He daily carries His cross. He lays His life before Jesus in total surrender. And I think you see the outcome of His life. The trials and the tribulations, Paul said, my life to me is counted as nothing if I may gain Christ. He, he says, I'm not afraid of death. I, I hope for it because to be with Christ is everything to me. And yet it's useful for me to be here, but I would much rather go on. At the end of his life, he said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race and there is laid before me a crown of glory ahead. Listen, you don't labor for that if you're living for yourself or for someone else or for something else. That crown of glory, that that. A greater outcome, that greater eternal rest that we enter in Christ, that's there when you follow Christ's command to lay down our life on His behalf. And, and the beautiful thing that when we do that, when we count our life as nothing, and we lay it down before Jesus, He actually gives us life. Just better life, right? It's just a more meaningful and better life. I, I wanted to say all that just because it. Um, I see people distracted oftentimes from from really living and investing and giving and serving and laying everything down for the kingdom of Christ. While they will lay everything down for a sport or for a hobby or for a, a, a you know, football game, or you know, they'll do everything they can to do all these other things, and yet it doesn't produce a meaningful life. Well, all that's bonus. We're going to read the text, and, uh, and, and, and I want to make a, a comment or two along the way. Um, in this passage. We're going to look at Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. Follow along with me as I read. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. Uh, This is the uproar that took place in Ephesus. There was a riot. Demetrius, the silversmith, got all the other silversmiths together that made these images of Artemis. Artemis. Uh, the Roman counterpart would have been Diana, and she had a great temple there, and they, um, they lost money because of Paul's preaching ministry. That's just the bottom line. They were very wealthy craftsmen before Paul came. Paul came and preached the gospel, and you'll remember from last week, they burned $6 million worth of magical books, magical arts instruction manuals and spells and things like that. As a result of their repentance and all these believers in Ephesus giving their life to Jesus, it hurt the bottom line of all the people who sold these um, trinkets to Artemis, to the people who idol. So after that uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples in Ephesus, and after he encouraged them, he told them farewell, and he departed for Macedonia. He he gathers the believers, and he encourages them. 
Verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So after he left Ephesus, he went to other regions in that Asia province of Rome, and he began to encourage those believers as well. And uh, verse 3 tells us that uh, he spent three months in that area, uh, Greece, that is. And, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria, but he decided to go north. If you know your uh, geography, he was in Corinth, maybe Athens, um, in the south part of Greece. And then he went north into Macedonia to some of the towns that he had visited before, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, eventually to Troas. This is just more um, information about Paul's traveling. Uh, Verses 4 through 6 give us a list of Paul's team that he had built out that he did ministry with. Uh, Sopater, the Berean. This, by the way, if you're looking for baby names, there's a great list right here. Sopater, the Berean, uh, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Segundus, uh, Gaius of Derby, Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and they were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So Paul had a team of people that was traveling with him. And I, and I just want to say this really clear. Paul, Paul knew nothing about this sort of Lone Ranger Christianity. I'm going to do ministry on my own. I'm going to put the burden on my back and, and I'm going to do something alone. Paul only knew team type ministry. And if you're uh, trying to do ministry and you're not building out a team and you're not building out people who are learning from you and growing with you and you're bringing along, um, then you're, you're doing it in a frustrate, a personally frustrating way and in a way that doesn't accomplish the mission. Paul brought along a team, and he developed believers in the process. Uh, When he gets to Troas, verse 7 says, On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. Just an interesting note here. This is the very first reference that we have in the New Testament to worship on Sunday. What was the normal day of gathering for believers and for Jews before this? It was the Sabbath, which was uh, technically Friday night at 6 p.m. until Saturday at 6 p.m., But believers began to gather on Sundays, and it became known as what's called the Lord's Day. It also says that when they gathered on the first day, the Lord's Day, to break bread, this breaking bread refers to observing communion in in a very similar way to what we did today. And here we are 2,000 years later, we're meeting on the Lord's Day on a Sunday, and we're breaking bread together, and then we have a fellowship meal afterward. It's some of these... um, patterns and rhythms that the church got into early on in the ministry days of Paul that we still continue to this day. So when he got there, and uh, they likely met in the evening, Sunday was a work day in the Roman Empire, and so they likely met later in the afternoon, maybe as early as 4 o'clock. So they may have been meeting um, early evening around supper time. And it says that Paul talked with them, and he intended to depart on the next day, but he prolonged his speech until midnight. Aren't you glad that some things change, right? Uh, some things never change. We meet on the Lord's Day. We observe the Lord's Supper. I don't really talk till midnight, right? I, I only have so many words per day, and once they're gone, they're gone, right? Um, uh, but Paul prolonged his speech. He spoke until midnight, and there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sat at the window, and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story, and he was taken up dead. 
But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread again and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. That's the next morning. And then he departed. And they took the youth away alive, and they were not a little bit comforted. We're going to talk about Eutychus for a minute, but, but before I do that, I just want to say that I'm, I'm a little bit struck by the longevity of their, their gatherings together. They would gather together um, on a Sunday, uh, early afternoon, maybe into the evening. They would eat together. Uh, somebody would teach from the Word together. They would pray together. They would sing together. They would eat together. They would, they would do all these things together. And, and it, was, uh, it was something not only that they looked forward to, and it wasn't something that they just endured, but there was a deep hunger in their heart to be a part of this community, to be a part of the fellowship of believers that God had gathered. And I know, I know that it's difficult for us to sort of put ourselves in that position. We, we gather for a couple of hours on Sunday, and it feels like a long day. Uh, if we gather for 14 to 18 hours a weekend, um, I think this would be a much smaller church, right? It would be a, a much smaller congregation. Uh, I don't teach like Paul. I mean, so that's true as well. But, but there was a deep hunger for the Word of God and for the fellowship and for the community, so much so that it dominated large parts of their, their weekly schedule. Their weekly routine was ordered around this one particular event, and they looked forward to it, and they longed for it, and once they were there, it, uh, it, it was never too soon to leave. They, they, they stayed as long as they could, even until daybreak. I recently heard a story about believers in China, and I, I gather those up and I, I read them carefully because the work that God has done in mainland China through the secret church and through believers there, you hear stories like this. I heard a missionary talk about uh, being asked to speak at a secret church gathering for leaders. And he traveled three or four days into uh, interior parts of China, and when he got there, it was this sort of compound um, structure with lots of apartments, sort of housing on two stories around with a large courtyard in the middle. And, and when he got there, he learned that um, the believers had traveled for five or six days by car, train, walking, any way they could get there. And they came there and, and they arrived and they brought Bibles. And he, he talked about how they cried as they received their first Bible and how they would hold it and how they would embrace it and how some of them if they already had a copy of a bible would give it away or or they had handwritten portions of scripture in loose leaf notebooks that they had gathered but once they got their first bible they it was just overwhelming to them but not just that that they would stay and learn in the same way that we just read here for 12 14 16 18 hours this guy said he this missionary said i taught all weekend long and they would not stop no one left and he said on the three o'clock one morning um i told them i, I have to go to sleep I just have to, and so he crawled into bed, and he said that he'd normally slept between three or four Chinese men on a mat on the floor, and, and when he woke up, no one was around him, and when he came out, he, he found them all um, praying and worshiping on the, the interior part of this compound, and, and when he asked somebody what, what happened, he said they were so overwhelmed when you told them that believers in America only gather for this amount of time, and that it's nothing like this. They were so grieved that they've been praying since you went to sleep for the church in America. It just, those stories bring a little bit of shame and guilt, I think, for me, in the sense that I wish that I had their hunger. 
I wish that I had passion for Jesus, that, that I would sacrifice more, that I would give more. You're not a real pastor in China uh, until you've been in prison for at least three years. That's, that's kind of an unspoken rule, that, that unless you've been to prison for your faith, you're you know, not a seasoned pastor yet. It's remarkable. But that story gives us some insight into what was taking place. There was a supernatural desire. Now, I know some of you would grit it out. You know, you would clench your teeth and you would make sure that you, if we were going to meet for 12 hours one Sunday, you know, I know some of you would do it, right? You'd like, I'm all in. You know, enough caffeine and enough snacks and enough. We can do this together, right? Uh, just reading and teaching the Word for 10, 12 hours, praying, reading, singing, worshiping. Um, but they don't do it out of just sheer determination and a sense of pride and accomplishment. They, they do it because their, their, their whole life is so moved by the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that they're giving everything away for it. They're laying down their life in total surrender. That's what we see evidence of in this passage. Well, in this passage, because it tends to steal attention, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting story. Eutychus's name, it means lucky or fortunate. I don't know if he got that name from this event or, or something else. Uh, my dad's dad, his nickname was Lucky. And um, he got his nickname because he was on the deck of the USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor and was one of the few uh, soldiers who escaped that. I actually have his um, Navy shirt that he was wearing on that deck um, it's way too small for me. They were much smaller, I think, in, in those times. Um, maybe I'm, I'm just heavy. Maybe I'm trying to... Um, yeah, I just couldn't fit in it if, if you wanted me to. Um, but we called him Lucky. His nickname was Lucky. Uh, Eutychus received a similar name. And I think his story is kind of relatable. It's easy for us to get attention. Who hasn't dozed off in a sermon? I'm not going to point any fingers. I mean, from my point of view, I know I know who you are, and but you know we don't have open windows, and so we we, we value your life. I've slept through many, many, many sermons and lectures uh, in my entire life. Some of the best sleep I've ever gotten is in a pew, you know, with somebody and singing. There's just something peaceful about an environment like this, and and so I don't fault anybody for sleeping because I, I've done it. A number of times, and in some seasons, when you're overworked and, and somebody has a monotone voice like I tend to get, and you drone on and on and on, and I'm not always that interesting, but, but um, we can relate to Eutychus, can't we? I have a preaching book on my shelf called Saving Eutychus, right? How to preach with a little bit more interesting, uh, interest in there. Paul is used by God, though, to revive him after he falls to his death. It says they took him up dead, not as dead, which indicates that he, he literally died. Uh, but, but I think that would wake up any congregation, right? If somebody falls down and they, they die, and then Paul revives them, and yet that wasn't the feature of this event. The feature of this event was that they, they met and gathered for these 16 to 18 hours straight of teaching. And although Eutychus' story is unique and relatable, I, I want to point out another feature that I saw in the text um, that I think will be um, more uh, relevant to your life today. And that is that, that three times in this passage, in these 12 verses, you know, there's one word used three times, and it's the word encouragement. Paul encouraged the disciples when he left Ephesus. 
Paul went through the region of Asia in verse 2, and he encouraged the disciples. Rowan gets this. I, she's chatting away. That's all right. She's fine. Who doesn't love a baby Rowan, right? Uh, no, Rowan gets this, right? Um, verse 1 and 2, Paul is encouraging the believers. He's strengthening the disciples. He's, he's stirring them up. He's urging them. Uh, again, in verse 12, the same Greek word parakaleo is used. It's the same word for um, comfort or encouragement. The Paul uh, says they took, um, they took this uh, youth, this young man up, and they were very comforted and encouraged. This describes Paul's ongoing care for the believers and for the churches that he started. Never just made a convert and that convert alone to fend for themselves. Uh, He he always followed up and he began to encourage them and strengthen them. The majority of Paul's letters, if you don't know this, um, Galatians is written to the churches in Galatia. Ephesians is written to the people in the town of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. Uh, Colossians is written to the believers who are from Colossae. Um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians is written to the believers in Philippi. Thessalonians, the believers in Thessalonica. I know that's kind of Bible 101, but maybe none of you had ever put those uh, pieces together. But Paul wrote these letters of encouragement to the believers in those particular cities. He sent teams there. He sent people there. His entire goal of his ministry was not just to make converts, but to strengthen them and encourage them in ongoing care for them. And I I can remember when the Lord put this conviction on my heart. Uh, I had labored as an evangelist in Oklahoma City in 2003, and and it was my goal to uh, share my faith as often as I could. And so one particular year, I I shared uh, my faith... uh, with 400 people or so. And, and, and throughout that year, I, my focus was on sharing the gospel personally, just trying to share the gospel with people. With, but I didn't do well at the follow-up part. And so I can remember early on in that year, uh, in our neighborhood, maybe 10 or 12 blocks from where Julie and I lived on Northwest 21st Street, down around Northwest 12th Street there in Oklahoma City, uh, on a very cold winter night, a neighbor heard a, um, a sound. He couldn't tell if it was a cat or what it was, but there was something crying. And he found, uh, when he went out to investigate, that somebody had laid a brand new infant um, and exposed the, the baby in a, and put it in a dumpster, in a box, and uh, wrapped in uh, clothes or whatever. And, and he found that baby just hours old. And when they found... Uh, obviously, they gave the baby care, and, and the, the baby was saved. And, uh, and when they found out what happened in the neighborhood, they found out that it was a, a teenage girl who was just terrified. And there was great compassion for her, and the child was taken care of. But, but that story left a mark on me uh, for the obvious reasons. But it also left a mark on me in that at the same time the Lord had, was bringing about this conviction that... Um, Leading people to faith in Christ and not following up and caring for them is the spiritual equivalent of leaving a baby exposed. And so I changed the way I did evangelism and disciple-making in making sure that there's ongoing care and strengthening and encouraging of new believers. See, Paul knew nothing about that. He, he was committed to making disciples and circling back around multiple times. A lot of these cities we'd already read about because he's been there multiple times and he wrote them letters and he sent them people because he cared for them. 
This word parakaleo, it's all over the New Testament. It's not just the word encouragement. The content of Paul's letter is filled with all kinds of parakaleo. It has a lot of synonyms. Encourage, encouraging, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Uh, Barnabas's generosity is described in context of his encouragement. Uh, in, in, in Acts 15, when the Jerusalem Council clarified the gospel, and they said, listen, you don't have to do works to be saved. You don't have to do something. You just have to believe in what Jesus already did. And when Paul and the Jerusalem Council made that decision and Paul went around telling everybody the clarification on the gospel, everybody says everyone was encouraged by that news. Doctrinal gospel clarity uh, is described in encouragement, enduring in the faith through trials. It's used 109 times in the New Testament, this word, uh, parakaleo. Let me just read you a couple of verses. Not all 109, because we're not the Chinese believers that meet for 12 hours. We're, I understand. Barnabas in Acts 4 is called the son of encouragement. His real name was Joseph, but we know him as Barnabas because he was so encouraging. Acts 14, uh, Paul goes around and he strengthens the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Uh, Acts 15, after the Jerusalem Council, they rejoiced because of the encouraging message of the clarified gospel. Uh, Acts 16.40, the day after Paul gets out of prison in Philippi, it says he gathers with Lydia and the disciples, and when they had seen them all, they encouraged them. They encouraged Apollos in Acts chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila. They encouraged him to go, and they welcomed the disciples, wrote to the disciples to welcome him. It says, when he arrived, he greatly strengthened those who through grace had believed. These two verses here in Acts chapter 20 uh, describe that. In Romans 1.12, Paul writes to the Romans and he says, I hope to come to you and, and, and my hope is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Romans 15.4, that anything written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Uh, Ephesians 6, I sent Epaphras to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Philippians 2.1, if you have any encouragement from being in Christ, any comfort from his love, if any affection and any participation in his spirit and sympathy, make my joy complete by being like Jesus. Colossians 2, if he prays that their hearts would be encouraged, that they would be knit together in love to reach all of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And then in Colossians 4.8, Paul says, I sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. You see how important this is in the New Testament? Church should be the most encouraging place to gather week in and week out. You should walk in here and, and immediately feel uplifted and boosted and encouraged and strengthened in your faith. Do you have someone in your life who is constantly doing this for you? Is there somebody that comes to mind as an encourager? Uh, there's a guy, uh, my, one of my mentors uh, named Craig, who is this person in my life. Faithful to check in on me and always has a positive thing to say. Paul was a force of strengthening people and building them up, never tearing them down. Almost every word of Paul is even if it's a harsh word, it's meant for a redemptive, life-giving purpose. And there's a difference there. How about you? Are you an encouraging person? 
when people leave from meeting with you or talking with you, do they do they get torn down a little bit or do they get lifted? Are you an encouraging person? Let me close with nine short and really specific ways if you're taking notes. It's not going to be long. Just one or two sentences for each one. But but nine specific ways that you can be an encouraging person. And, and most of these are, are found right here in the New Testament. Uh, number one, start just by asking that, that God would use you to be an encouraging person. See, the minute you change your prayers from me and what I need and my situation to you begin to say lord how can i how can i build somebody up today just let it start with prayer and and when your prayer language changes and you begin to think about other people and then you begin to look for those opportunities something interesting happens i I prayed that prayer yesterday Uh, i was marshalling for uh, the local generations and um, i got on the street corner and i had about 40 minutes before the runners started and came through my area i just stood on the street corner and held a flag and stopped traffic and encouraged the runners as they ran up but but i prayed i said god would you use me today to encourage somebody would you use me to 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 help somebody can i can i be a light and salt in this in this area in Souderton? and just a couple hours later we were sitting at the parade and um and we this woman just walked by as a total stranger and she saw my shirt and she said, did you run that race? And I said, no. Um, I was a marshal and I told her about it and we got into this conversation, uh, a, w- a sweet woman named Anna, maybe in her 80s, and, um, and she began to tell me her life story and w- maybe within five or six minutes she, she's crying and she's telling me how difficult her situation is and I put my arm around her and I said, can I pray for you? And I prayed with her and, and we sat and met for 20 minutes. It was Julie and everyone, in May, I don't know if they saw it or not, but it was just kind of this moment by Univest Bank that got a prayer that had I not prayed it, I don't know that I would be looking for it. And I just started the day asking God, how can I be used by you to encourage somebody and build somebody up? The second thing, be very generous. Not necessarily money, but with your time and your resources. How can you meet somebody's practical need? How can you meet somebody's practical need? This is one of the things I absolutely love about this fellowship. Some of the most generous people you'll ever meet. Somebody has a need, we're going to throw six casseroles in your freezer. You know, we're going we're to cook you to death, right? We're going to um, give you as much food as you need, and we're going to come to your house, and we're going to hang out, and we're going to pray for you. This is the most generous giving church uh, I, I can say that I've maybe ever been a part of. Being a gift-giving person doesn't have to mean that you're wealthy. It doesn't have to mean that you have lots of expendable income. There are many ways that you can give, but having a heart of generosity rather than a heart of what can I get from somebody is a way better way that you can be an encourager. A third is challenging each other. It tells us to stir each other up. There's language like I urge you. So let me just remind you that not all encouragement is soft and squishy, right? Not everything is um, attaboys and pats on the back. I, I was preaching or uh, uh, leading in a church in Oklahoma City, and, and this man who had invested in me for a long time, um, at some point he just walked up to me after a service one Sunday, and he said, uh, hey fella, you're fat. 
<laughs> and, and I was a little bit taken aback, but uh, somewhere around age 26 or 27, my, my metabolism just said, hey, I'm clocking out. I'm kind of done, you know. And, and, and so eating the way I ate in my mid-20s and early 20s and teens just wasn't necessarily working for me. Uh, somebody gave me a birthday card and it showed somebody progressing in age and the belt was the same and the pants were the same, but the stomach hung over more. And I was like, is he trying to tell me something? Um, but this particular man, when he encouraged me in this way, he was right. He was right. And he said, your weight reflects your self-discipline and it reflects self-control over your appetite. And it, it reflects an aspect of your work with the Lord and he was kind enough and sweet enough and had invested in me enough that he had the right to speak a hard thing into my life. And as a result, I looked up this plan, how to get in shape, and I did this thing called 30 days for 30 minutes. And I remember nights, it was midnight, and I was like, Julie, I've got to go do this run. Um, you know, I'm going to get this 30 days in. And that led to running 5Ks, and that led to eventually doing a few triathlons. But, but had Herman not said something hard to me, he wouldn't have challenged me in a good way. So take this out of your category of encouragement that some words can't be hard and challenging and difficult. That was a challenging, encouraging word. But let me just make this caveat here. This is not an issue of your personal preference, all right? Uh, Let me give you just a couple of do's and don'ts about that. Don't challenge people to be just like you or to even agree with your personal preferences. Be discerning enough to know that, hey, this is just me, and that's not a big deal for him and for his life or for her and her life. If you have a personal preference and you kind of want to match everybody to yours and you're challenging them, sometimes it just comes across like you're being a jerk, right? And and don't be a jerk if you want to challenge somebody. Some people use this as an excuse and say, well, I'm just up front and I just speak my mind as though it's a good thing. But uh, you could tear somebody down if you're not careful with your words. Uh, Do be redemptive. And do be careful, because your words carry a lot of weight. Don't just share your opinions, but do share Holy Spirit-inspired challenges when you're seeking to do this. Uh, Number four, use the Scripture as the content of your encouragement. I'll text people every week, Hey, the Lord put this verse on my heart, and I hope it encourages you. Um, I did that for one guy, um, and Dave Morgan, and he showed me over the weekend, I got that tattooed on my knuckles, this verse that you gave me. In Colossians 1, 13-14, that He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. David said to me on Thursday, to me this is the greatest gospel verse reminder in Scripture. And it was not a big deal. It's just me sending him a text with this passage that the Lord had brought to mind. Use Scripture as the content for your encouragement. Number five, speak really specific and sincere blessings over people. I think all of us can spot a fraud, you know. I think all of us kind of have a meter that tells us when someone is um, puffing us up or if they're just trying to flatter us or if they're insincere in some way. There's no better way to be sincere than to be specific and to be direct and to be... um, encouraging people with something that is unique to them. Maybe something like, hey, I watched you and I saw how you handled that difficult situation and, and, and I, it, it encouraged me the way you handled this. Or, or, or maybe this is what I see in you. You're a kind person or you're a gracious person. And here's an example or two 
or God has really gifted you and he's used you in this way in my life or I can see God using this using you in this particular way in the future those sort of specific blessings they they put wind in people's sails oftentimes when they need it the most number 6 um, tell stories of God's redemptive work can you imagine the stories that Paul had Oh, when we were in Ephesus and when we were in Philippi, there was this little demon-possessed girl and she was following us around the city and, and the Lord enabled me to deliver her from this oppression. And she was delivered from demonic influence. And now she's whole. What a great story. Uh, questions of opportunities about the Philippian jailer who was converted his entire household, yelling at them, how must I be saved? And every time Paul went to a different city, he just racked up these great redemption stories. How do you feel when you hear somebody who has been delivered from real darkness and how God has redeemed them? I think it builds hope and encouragement. Uh, number seven, remind people of the truths of the gospel. I hear people occasionally say to me things like, I, I just don't feel like God can really forgive me. Or I just don't see God at work in my life. Or, or I, I just struggle with this trial. Or just a little while ago, Ryan read that a smoldering wick God will not snuff out. You know, a candle that's just about to go out, when God sees that there's very little flame left in it, He doesn't come over and snuff it out, but He fans it back into flame. And this is a picture of the way God gives life. This is a redemptive message in the Gospel. That, that if you feel like there's very little life left in me, God doesn't want to snuff that flame out, but He wants to fan that. And those are part of these truths uh, of the gospel that we want to be encouraging people with. Now, number eight, if you want to be an encourager, um, be a really good listener. Just ask really good questions and then shut your mouth, right? Um, Some people, they just kind of wait for your mouth to stop moving and then they want to tell you how how it's better for them. You ever be around people who are constantly kind of one-upping you? You walk away saying, I guess I'm not as good as that person, right? Every story I told or everything that we talked about, they had something better or more dynamic or more. Don't be one of those people. Be one of those people who asks a great question and then just listen really well. Most people don't have a dedicated listener in their life. And then the thing I'd encourage you to do is just empathize with people. In many ways, match the energy that somebody is giving. If, if their face is sad, um, understand that and, 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 and try to empathize with them. Listen, you wouldn't believe the number of people that I see sort of silently dabbing tears or hurting in a room like this. People come to a congregation like this and, and it's tempting for us to kind of put on a face of everything's great, good, I'm doing well. Um, but oftentimes people come from... Uh, very difficult situations. Do you know that one in 14 homes uh, is uh, has domestic violence in it? Domestic abuse. One in four women have experienced sexual abuse. One in five men. People are carrying heavy, heavy loads. And if you don't have any empathy or compassion, uh, you're not a very encouraging person. Understand that people who are sitting on the chairs next to you, they're, they're going through oftentimes very difficult trials and, and, and you are placed within their proximity so that God can use you to encourage them or strengthen them or give them hope or even just to be someone who cries with them. 
This is the opportunity that you have every single week. And I think that if you'll do two or three of these things every week, if you'll take this list and make it a bookmark and just challenge yourself to do one or two or three of these, maybe even all nine, but if you can do these things every week, this will be the most encouraging place every week. And people will want to come, right? People always want to go to a place where they walk away feeling built up. It's so easy for us to slip into a real consumer mentality, right? I like this church sometimes, but I don't always like that speaker. Or I, always, I don't always like that song that we sing, or I don't like the temperature, or I don't like the location, or I don't. And, and so I'm going to go somewhere else that has all the kind of things that we want. And we can, we can easily slip into a thing where you think that this church exists for you, right? You think that we gather here so that, so that you can be fed and, and strengthened and everything can be for you, about you. My favorite songs, my favorite vocalists, my favorite instrumentalists, and, and you'll miss everything. Gather here. For each other, we gather primarily for the, for the Lord Jesus Christ as His church. We gather to build each other up. Father, we thank You for this passage today. And we thank You for Your Word here. And I pray that people would walk away encouraged today. Not just by Your Word and not just by uh, the fellowship and the singing and the teaching and, and all the things. But, but I pray that more importantly, that they would be encouraged by the people all around them. That, that somebody in this room, would take the task, this God-given task of being someone who builds others up, not who brings them down. And I pray that you would use this congregation for that purpose. And we ask it today in Jesus' name. Amen.